our cancer journey. Hey, OCJ Triprince. Today's episode is the second installment of our interview with Kathleen Ross Ali. She's a certified yoga oncology therapist and a good friend of this program. We're going to continue our conversation about restorative yoga, and Kathleen will share tips about us attending our very first recovery yoga class. Check out this tip from the show. Okay, when you were working out in the old days, you were probably working at 120%. So I need you to sit back and re-examine what your workout is. Look at it a different way. Let's look at it as a student of your own body. How does it feel now? Because before, we just pushed through it and did as much as we could. Now I'm going to say, do 10. Did it work? Did you like it? So it's reframing the situation to reinvent your strength. The Our Cancer Journey podcast is a place for those impacted by cancer, their caregivers, and their loved ones. Together, we explore ways that we can optimize our lives through the experiences of diagnosis and treatments and beyond into the future of survivorship. And now your host, Bruce Watkins. Greetings, everyone. I am Bruce Watkins, your intrepid host for the Our Cancer Journey podcast. This is the show where together we will explore ways to help you feel better, live happier, expand your self-empowerment, and enhance your life experience. Thank you for joining us today. Kathleen Ross Ali, our engaging friend, certified oncology yoga expert, director of yoga studies at Loyola Marymount University, educator, speaker, and friend of this program, is back. Now, this is the second installment of my long interview with Kathleen. In the first installment, which is episode number two of our series this season, Kathleen gave us the background about what restorative yoga is all about and how to find a certified oncology yoga therapist. It was an insightful interview with some really fun feedback, too. And now we're continuing our conversation. Jumping into the future, we're attending our very first recovery yoga class. Kathleen gives us some insights on what it's going to be like when we show up at our first class. And she's going to give us a whole bunch of practical tips on how we can have the best experience possible. But before we jump to the interview, I want to share something about how this particular interview started because it's pretty different. You see, in the first installment of the show, you might have heard me ask Kathleen, tell me a little bit about yourself. That's a traditional way I start most interviews. I want us to get to know our guest. And Kathleen did that, and we got on with the interview, but it was only later that I realized I didn't ask another question. One I like to ask. And that question was, had she or anybody in her personal life ever been touched by cancer? Well, when she answered, I was completely taken aback. She told me something I had never heard before, and it was profound. Now, it's not on the topic of recovery yoga and the other things we're talking about, but I chose to leave it in the program, and I did it for two reasons. What she said was incredibly important for many people that are out there on their own personal cancer journeys. It was direct and you can hear in her voice the importance of what she's trying to tell us. The second reason why I left it in there is because I truly believe in my heart that it's important for us to hear and understand that there are times when there are people around us, and sometimes there are people that are helping us, that have very quietly and privately gone through their own personal cancer journeys. So although this starts out a little untraditionally, I appreciate you taking a listen. So let's get to the show. Hope you enjoy it. Hey, Kathleen, how are you? Welcome back. Hey, Bruce. Always great to hear your voice. I'm so excited to talk to you again. Well, I'm excited too, because our last conversation was filled with a lot of really good information, and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and for you listeners out there, this podcast episode is the second part of an interview series with Kathleen. The first part of that interview is episode number two in this season's podcast series, Go check it out. There's lots of great takeaways. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. But Kathleen, before we talk today about our first cancer recovery class and how we can get the most out of it, I realized I did not ask you something I wanted to ask you in the last interview. And I'd like to do that now. All right. I never specifically asked you if you or anybody you knew had ever been touched by cancer. I mean, you got into this oncology yoga thing many years ago, right when it was emerging. And in some ways, you pioneered it. But 
Was there some event that happened that motivated you to be interested in this field and to pursue it? Oh, yeah, that was, let's see, it had to be before, oh gosh, it was 15 years ago. It was like 2005. It was kind of on the heels of my mother's cancer journey because she had breast cancer, she had colon cancer, and there wasn't a lot there for her during that time. I'm not sure she would have reached out because she was not someone who was looking for alternative healing or supportive complementary programs. So when someone would come my way with cancer, I was more attuned, I think. I think I have to acknowledge the fact that it interested me because it was in my own family and I wanted to do something for someone else when I couldn't actually help my own family. Wow, uh, Kathleen, that's a powerful motivator. I never knew that. We've never talked about that before. Thank you for sharing that. And I know you know that this program is not just for cancer patients, but it's also for caregivers and loved ones of folks that are impacted by cancer, too. So those insights are really valuable to hear. I saw my mom's name and it was sitting there and went, oh, I need to tell mom's story. Well, I'm happy you did. I think that's, this is an important offshoot because the way I found out about my mom's cancer was my dad picked me up at high school and said, we're going to go visit your mom at the hospital. She just had surgery. She had a mastectomy. I didn't even know she had cancer. Whoa, you, you didn't? Hold on, hold on. How old were you at this time? I was 17. Wow. Kathleen, I've known you all these years. We've never talked about this. I, I, I had no idea. And that's how I found I was picked up at school taken to the hospital, and she'd already had the mastectomy, didn't know she had cancer. Wow. Wow. Well, I I suppose that's one strategy for communicating (laughs) with your kids. I had to go back to school and perform that night in a show. Okay, Kathleen, I'm going to take a break here for a second. Hey, friends, it's Bruce, and I am hopping into the show for a little bit to talk about what just happened. As you heard, I stopped the interview with Kathleen and I turned off the recording. Now, this is unusual because at the Our Cancer Journey podcast, we're all about authenticity and transparency. But in this case, I'm sure you heard what I heard in Kathleen's voice, and that's that the decision her parents made on when and how to communicate her mother's cancer to Kathleen is still resonating in her to this day. Now, I left this part of the recording in for two reasons. The first is that it was really profound. It's rare that we get a chance to really hear what the downstream effects are of some of our decisions that we're making in real time during our own cancer journey. And communicating to children is one of the most difficult things to consider because there's so many variables and family dynamics and children's personalities are all very unique. We do plan to have a conversation about when and how to communicate to people about your diagnosis, and communicating to children is going to be part of that discussion. But until we do publish that program, taking the opportunity to hear other people's stories and consider the downstream impacts of some of those decisions should be part of our consideration process. The second thing is that, yes, while we're into transparency and authenticity, because we are, There comes a time when there's a person sitting across the way from you. They're either a close loved one, a dear friend, or maybe somebody that you just respect like a work colleague or somebody at school. And maybe in casual passing conversation, or maybe just out of the blue, they share something with you that you know is outside of their demeanor, and you can feel that there's something happening. It's at those times that we have a decision to make. We can either go on autopilot say the usual perfunctory little things that we all say when we don't know what to say. You know what I'm talking about. Or we can do something different. We can take a moment, take a breath, be present for that person, and just hold space. We cannot assume anything. We can allow them to tell us what they need, even if it's for us to just be there with them and sit with them. It's that kind of personal commitment that changes the dynamic from ones where we're just sitting around each other to being with each other. So I wanted to let you know that that's what I did on this podcast. I suppose I am being transparent because I'm telling you I was trying to hold space for Kathleen. And now that I'm thinking about it, maybe I'm also advocating too because I think we should all hold space for each other in those times. 
So I did check in with Kathleen when I stopped the recording, and as I suspected, she was fine. So she said, let's get back on the recording. So we hopped right back into it. So now back to the recovery yoga ideas of what we can do with our first class to get the most out of them. Back to the show. Well, hi, Kathleen. Welcome back. (laughs) Okay, so we are going to talk about a whole basket of different stuff. Okay. So we spent our first show talking about teachers and their certifications and kind of what happens around the integrative yoga, Western medicine stuff. Let's talk about us now. Let's talk about us showing up to our very first restorative yoga class. And what are some good ideas and best practices we can do to make sure we get the most out of it? Well, hopefully you'll be given some information before you get there. But I know that that's not always the way it works. Sometimes you walk in, you've been walking around trying to find the room. And so the stress level is coming up. So one of the first things I would say is arrive early, make a plan so that you get there at least 15 minutes to a half an hour early. Because at that point, you will be able to probably have a private pre-conversation with the instructor. So if you're someone who feels like, I don't know what's going on, I'm not comfortable, just don't show up late. Because what that does is it adds a lot of stress to you. And guess what? Also to the instructor. So in our first part of the interview, I talked to you about this concept about intake where you or the doctors or both are trying to get information about us patients so you can coordinate your care with one another. Well, now that you've done that intake, how does that influence what happens in our very first class? In this space, it's slightly different than what a doctor would be doing. In an intake for yoga therapy, we're looking at different layers of the body. So we have questions where we're asking how they're feeling physically, where the pain is, how they are emotionally, what in their life has changed because of cancer, what do they seek? We're looking for, why are they there? Why do they want to see me? And so it's the client request, what their needs are. I'm watching their physical body. I'm seeing where I can work with them. If I see them stumble, there might be dizziness. So I'm literally doing a physical intake and then I'm jotting notes down and it's what the patient tells me. It's what I observe. Then it's what I apply and what I observe when they do the work. And then I set up a practice for them. I want to make sure that what I'm offering them in the room, they can take something home with them to start to build safety in their own home. So they don't feel like the only time they get this feeling is with me. I want to empower them for their lives. Okay. I really liked what you just said about empowering people. But before we go on, I want to talk about something because you just said a word I've heard a lot of times before, and it's the word practice. Oh, (laughs) okay. Okay. You get it. You get it. All right. So I have an observation here and it's that I have never met a yoga teacher or somebody that likes yoga. Never met one that doesn't say the word practice, if not in every other paragraph, in every other sentence. Correct. I mean, it just (laughs) seems to be again and again and again. And I have a little bit of an understanding on what you mean by the word practice. But for the rest of us, Kathleen, out there, and you used to be one of us, Surely you realize the word practice carries along with it a negative connotation, right? I mean, (laughs) you know, I'm looking for ways that we can avoid barriers to doing something as beneficial as like exercising or yoga. But when you say the word practice, I mean, it kind of invokes people's ideas of being given an accordion for their birthday and their parents going, you need to practice. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on, hold on, hold on. I got to say something. I want to say a disclaimer here. I like accordions. I love accordions. I like polka music. I like French cafe music. I love Flaco Jimenez. I'm just talking about the concept of practice. It's an analogy. Please remain calm at all times. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Kathleen, what I'm trying to say is that practice sometimes equals routine, drudgery, work obligation. It's stuff that we've been trained in our society to not like, to try to avoid or accept, not look forward to. Yes. 
So can you please explain what you mean by practice and what practice should mean to the average student like me and my friends out there in the listening audience? Yeah, it, it makes total sense. And of course, my mind's going, what other word could we use? And you know, the other words that come up are a routine. It's same thing. We've got this negativity around certain words in our life because of the way we've been trained. Even a training is like, ah, I have to work hard. <laughs> I have to train. <laughs> well, I, yeah, exactly. But doesn't the word train mean the same thing? I mean, it's a lot like the word practice. Well, like, for example, I, I play music. You know that, Kathleen. And let's say, hypothetically, that I was good enough and I was training, I was practicing because I wanted to play the Hollywood Bowl one day and I wanted to go up there and play a bunch of pieces of music flawlessly. Well, that's my end goal. So I'm practicing towards that goal and that can feel like drudgery. But if I change my mindset and I'm just playing the instrument, I'm playing music, I'm trying to get this a little better and this a little better, and I'm doing it for the love of it. I mean, it changes from drudgery to enjoyment. It changes from something I have to do to something I like and want to do. So how do we get yoga from something we need to do or should do to something we want to do? I think with yoga... We've coined that phrase because there's two types of practice. There's the actual movements that you've put into a cohesive pattern that will give you support. And then there's practicing it. So we've got a noun and we've got a verb. I would also say that it's an integration of what you've learned. So maybe integrating the practice, maybe it needs to be a phrase rather than just it's your practice. I'm going to integrate this work. Ooh, this work, that's nice too. So maybe we have to float a few ideas for people. But I agree with you. I think the word practice has its own problematic reaction for some people. Well, I think it was you that said a long time ago that a goal could be both a positive or a negative. It could be something motivational or aspirational that we could aim for. Or it could be an idea that's out there that we may or may not meet. And that fear of being disappointed or embarrassed or let down, that you never get there, it actually becomes a deterrent because you don't want to fail your goal that's out there. It's this kind of loop. How do we avoid goals becoming detriments? That's why the yoga is brilliant, because it offers you the opportunity to set intentions, not goals. Because again, a goal is something we set at you know New Year's. We got all these New Year's goals, these things that we set for the year. But an intention is I'm intending to do this. It gives me wiggle room to change it. Well, you know, I really love that because I am one of those people that gets tripped up on my goals. And the whole thing about intention is that it doesn't really matter if you make your goal. You're just having fun practicing and setting an aim out there somewhere without necessarily an expectation. I like that. It really takes the weight off, doesn't it? Yeah. But you also brought up a great point when you're talking about practice as getting ready for the Hollywood Bowl. It reminds me of when I would rehearse for a show. Back in the day, I was rehearsing dinner theater back in Florida, and we'd have two weeks to rehearse, and then we'd have one week of shows, and it was over. So I loved the rehearsal process because as soon as the show opened, I started to get depressed because that meant the show is almost over. When I'm in rehearsal, that's the exploration time. That's when I get to explore the character. That's when I get to develop the work. So if we can look at yoga and the practice as developing our work, it's a time of exploration. You're right. I think it's important to share that information when we're teaching our students. I think you're bringing up a really great point saying, I need you to practice this or this is your yoga practice. And during this time, this is what we're exploring. Well, there's two things you just said that I absolutely love. The first is you use the word exploring. It's one of my favorite words because I'm naturally curious. And, you know, we advocate people being engaged and empowered and nothing does that more than you being present and just saying, hey, I want to check this out. I want to explore this. So that's great. And you applying that to yoga where you're making yoga now a safe place for people just to come in and check things out instead of coming in with a whole list of expectations and comparing themselves to the waif over there that can bend herself in a pretzel, you know, or, or somebody that looks completely different than us. 
instead of fretting about that, we can just come in and do everything in the yoga class just to check things out for ourselves. You know, that's really great. So I want to segue into some things you talk about, the breath and the body connecting the two and the positive impacts of that. I've done some research on stress and distress. Stress being something that's in our normal everyday life when there's a challenge, our body, our mind, our emotions gear us up to meet that challenge. That's kind of normal everyday, what they call healthy stress, which sounds kind of bizarre because we always are told that stress is terrible. But there is some level of stress in our lives that can be beneficial to us. But then there's another type of stress called distress. That's where the level of stress just amplifies and we start looping. We go into fight or flight mechanism. It affects our body, our emotions, and our mind, and we can't break it. And it causes all kinds of physiological reactions and mental clouding, and it's a really terrible state. The mind-body-breath connection that you were talking about was one of the things that I learned that helps to deactivate distress. I learned that earlier this year when I was doing some research on an article I wrote. I know. I, I read that article, Bruce, and I had to share it with all of my students, not just my patients, but, you know, I'm, I'm a teacher as well, and I teach yoga therapy students. And it resonated at a level that I haven't been able to express to them. So I, I thank you for that. It's such a great article. Well, well thank you, Kathleen, for the kind words. Uh, listeners, the article was published in Best Self Magazine. I'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. The article was written in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic that was happening at the time I wrote it. However, the information in the article about distress and how to disengage, it really applies to all situations. So I, I hope you all find it helpful. Thanks, Kathleen. But what I wanted to say was that you're mentioning the body and the breathing and the connection. I found, and so did other people I went to class with, that once we started getting into the breathing parts of the yoga while we were moving, it really helped quiet our mind. It helped calm us down. It helped us to also be more aware of our body and the movements. And that's yet another positive aspect about integrating yoga in with modern medicine. I just thought it was really helpful. Yeah. And it's a great way to look at the practice of yoga as it relates to breathing, meditation, all sorts of ways in. There are different ways in and not everything works for everybody. So sometimes I was just working with this the other day when we're maybe having an extended exhalation. Someone may say, I can't do that. So we have to come up with another way in. It may just be that they have to check in with the body. What are the muscles doing in my jaw? I mean, it could be as simple as doing, like you mentioned, feeling the muscles in my body, maybe doing squeeze and release. So the approach has to be different for each person. What if you're not relating to it that day? So that's why it's really important to experience it and then have the wherewithal. You asked earlier, what should a student do? Tell the teacher that did not feel good. That's why you do the check-in. Actually, that breath made me feel more anxious. Oh, well, let's talk about that. Be honest. Don't, don't just go, okay, I don't like yoga. And that's a little important comment you just made there because there's people out there that experience a little discomfort doing something at their job or trying a yoga class or something, and they just kind of give up and leave because they don't like the momentary discomfort, even though that that's not really what the entire class is about, and they quit. So that's a great point, Kathleen. So I'd like to change gears a little bit here, and uh, forgive me, Kathleen, this may turn into a little bit of a rant. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry, but this is a topic that's kind of important to me. It has to do with people like me and other students and some experiences we've had with just a few teachers along the way, mostly outside of these certified programs we've been talking about. But I think it's important. And I'd like to refer back to that time when I had been in South America for a while and I had come back to the United States, Kathleen. And you asked me to speak at the college where you teach certification classes to yoga therapists. And you asked me to come in and speak to them from the patient perspective. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was the best year ever. The be I got the best evaluations that year. Are you coming back this year, Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's really kind of you, Kathleen. But I think the 
positive evaluations were mostly about the fact that you put together a really brilliant curricula that was really aimed at trying to take these soon-to-be-certified yoga therapists and teach them how to connect with people like me and my cancer compadres out there in the listening audience so they could serve us better, which was very much appreciated, and thank you for that. The topic came up about sometimes teachers can become more self-focused than student-focused. And that issue, while it's rare, and extremely rare with certified teachers with training, that issue is more of an issue when it comes to folks in our cancer community who really need that support. Let me give you an example. I've heard over the years that people go to yoga classes, they go to workout classes, spin classes, maybe they get a personal trainer, heck, maybe they even get a counselor. So later when the student comes up to the counselor or therapist or whatever and asks them, what can I do to do more to support myself? The only answer those people have sometimes, those teachers, is come to class. Yeah. And, you know, that's great. And depending on what economic strata you're in, whether you have disposable money, maybe that's fine. For some people, that's a challenge right there. So that's an issue. But I want to hear from you about those teachers that seem to always encourage people to come to class. The only answer they have for what can I do to get better is come to class. Isn't it most important that teachers teach people how to fish? That they teach? <laughs> and you're talking about a personal yoga practice. I needed something where I could build something where I could do things at home. How can we identify teachers who are really motivated to teach us how to teach ourselves and keep this thing going when they're not around? Does that make sense? Of course. Of course it does. I think you're talking about an old style of um, yoga in a sense of it's an old model. Pay money, come. I make a living. You get yoga. And that's just part of our monetary system. That's just kind of the way it works. Teachers need to make a living and they need you to come back. So very subtly, especially when you're a new teacher, you don't want to empower them to go home and do it themselves because you need to make a living and that's okay. But that's at a certain level. But once you go to that next layer, and especially in this community, you are needing someone to support you. And the idea of the tradition of yoga is usually teacher to student, one-on-one, a mentor, right? And then at a certain point, they say, you're ready, go off, (laughs) go off and be. Well, thanks for that, Kathleen. I'm not saying that there's a significant number of yoga teachers out there that are doing these kind of things, but it has happened. And you, above everybody else, knows full well how difficult it is for patients sometimes to make it in for therapy sessions and even medical appointments. Many times when you are going through treatment, you may not feel like coming into the classroom for many reasons. You don't feel well. You've just had treatment. You're afraid that you're going to catch something. You're worried about infections. You're worried about colds and flus. And of course, now COVID. And so now you're isolating in your home and you're dependent upon someone to watch on TV or Zoom or whatever you're doing but you haven't been empowered to do something on your own. And that is really where this field has shifted. We cannot be afraid that students won't come back to us. They'll come back to us in different ways. So I look at it as I had a student years ago that I empowered so much that he moved to India to study yoga. I haven't done that. But what he also did was he told people about me. So we share the wealth in that way. It's like therapy. A good therapist gets you to a certain place and then they go, okay, I don't think you need me now. I think you're doing well right now. If I hold on to you, then I hold on to you and you're not growing. If I can't give you enough of a practice where you can make it your own, it's like any artist. You learn the technique and then you have to embody it and that it empowers you and it builds the resilience that we talk about. Because now you feel confident. But if I keep that little string attached, like, I need your money, I need you to come in, then I'm never going to give you back who you are. Kathleen, thanks for your candor on this. I know it must be difficult being a teacher talking about other teachers. 
But if any teachers are out there listening, look, this is just as much in your best interest as it is in our best interest. So thanks for listening. So Kathleen, before we continue and we start talking about different types of barriers that students might face when attending their first class or when they're in class, are there any other thoughts about teachers, the way they approach the teaching, the way they approach the students that we should know about, maybe keep an eye out for, and you can advise us on that may help us if something comes up like that? I think the most important piece of looking for someone is to know that they understand from the Western perspective to the Eastern perspective, how they can be of support to this journey for the patient. If the yoga teacher has an aversion to doctors and nurses, this is not going to serve the patient well. People have their own agenda when they go into any kind of field. But if you are specifically a patient who's been working in Western medicine, you need a teacher who's been trained to work with medical professionals so we can understand the languaging so that we know what you've been through. And then we're going to take you and work with you to heal yourself from all of those experiences. Because who wants to go into surgery? Who wants to have this information thrown at them? And especially when you first find out, you don't have the resources because who knew that that's what you were going to hear when you walked into the doctor's office? So the teacher that goes through a training for cancer patients has to have the empathy and the understanding of what it might be like, even if they haven't had cancer themselves. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about us showing up to a class. And while we hope it might be optimal and fantastic, maybe there's some things that are a little bit out of kilter when we show up. The teacher shows up and the classroom wasn't set up and the teacher's not set up for success, or there's issues with other students. There's so many different dynamics that could be at play. Why don't we just start off with the class is chaotic when you show up. Tell us what to do. Yeah, you absolutely. If you're watching the dynamic of the room, if the person's walking around, then you know that they're going to get to you. If they are on their cell phone at the very first class, I would really watch the energy of the teacher because they kind of tell you I can be approached or I cannot be approached. So I always recommend for a student just to kind of sit back for a moment, take a breath. And one of the ways, one of the sneaky ways you can get the attention of a teacher is to literally not start the practice when they start. So the teacher goes, can I, is there something that I can help you with before we get started? Because sometimes if you approach a teacher and they're in that scattered mode, especially if you're in a hospital, sometimes it's they've got to get, you know, somebody out of the room or they got to get somebody in or they're talking to the administration. And you may never get that chance to walk in and say, this is what's going on with me. Now, one would hope if that's the type of class it is, that there's an intake that has been received. But as a as a patient and if you're feeling uncomfortable I would literally stand near the teacher and just say, I'm just unsure. I've never been in a yoga class before. I have some concerns physically. I know you're very busy, but I just wanted to make you aware that I've got a frozen shoulder. Just like throw it out there so that the teacher understands that they need to keep an eye on you. If you're in a general class, it depends on where you are. But I think that for me, if someone is just standing there, I can feel the energy of like, that person needs to talk to me. Right, right. Absolutely. Without going, hey, 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 or waving. The waving the hand thing is very irritating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose there's a way to be a little bit more subtle. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you can't blame them for trying, but uh, I think that's a message to work with the teacher in the best way possible to communicate with them. Okay. Well, now let's talk about the other thing that could impact the group dynamic, and that's the other people in the group. I think one of the barriers for people coming to get this kind of help or other kind of help where they come to a group situation is actually attending a group because, you know, these people have had weird experiences with some group situations. You know, I've had a few myself. Now, I'm not exactly a joiner, so I can kind of relate to these people. Oh, oh, hold on, hold on. I've attended a lot of groups. Maybe I am a joiner. <laughs> I never thought about that before. But I've experienced it too. And maybe you have listeners that when you've been in the corporate world or you've gone to physical therapy classes or workout classes or counseling, you know, group sessions or whatever, 
if you get more than a couple people into place, there can be some people that are struggling in some ways. Can you give us a few insights in those situations? Yeah. And I, you know, if there's a, every so often there might be, and we've talked about this, there, there are personalities sometimes that come into these classes that may need more attention. So if we feel that there is a dangerous person, so to speak, a dangerous person in the room that's affecting the other patients, then it's, and, and usually it is a mental health component. So then the, the emails go out so that we can make sure that the core of the class is safe. And then the doctor in charge does an interview and makes a decision whether they will be participating in the program. It is so important. Not everyone is adaptable to a group setting. Okay, now that's a great point, but I would like to make something clear for the audience. And Kathleen, feel free to weigh in on this. But folks, this is just my opinion, but I've been to a number of groups and talked to a lot more people that have been to many, many, many group situations. And the incidences of somebody being really mentally unstable and potentially dangerous, I've never even heard of it. And I'm sure it's probably exceedingly rare. Now, Kathleen, it's wonderful to hear that you and doctors are really on the lookout for any kind of person that may in the very rarest situations be in that frame of mind, because that really helps us to feel safe. And that's great. But I get where a lot of people are coming from out there because they have experienced group situations. And no matter where you go, there can be some odd, slightly uncomfortable dynamics out there. And here you are supposed to be focusing on your health, but you're dealing with some other people. And these people are, you know, they got a few issues. Right. So there's all kinds of dynamics. Kathleen, can you weigh in on some of those things and what we as students might be able to do to work with a teacher to make the best of those kind of situations and maybe even help the class? Yeah, it's a it's like high school sometimes, <laughs> Just to be honest with you. There are clicks that happen, people that have known each other for a long time, people that want to talk about their cancer, people that don't want to talk about their cancer, people that want to sneak in at the last second so they don't have to talk to anybody and they sneak back out the back door, people that arrive early so they can, and I love, I know I'm going to get in trouble by saying this, but there are those that like to suck the air out of the room. Everything is about them. So as a teacher, you have to know who those people are to give them enough attention so that in class, when you need to basically tell them to take a breath, somebody else needs to speak now, that they don't get their feelings hurt. Well, yeah, I guess you're not just teaching a class, right? I mean, you're actually giving people some care and space too. So that everyone needs to be heard in their own way. But part of what you have to do in a class is you use philosophy, you use yoga philosophy and teachings to weave into a class. So it's about letting go. We might say aparigraha, letting go, one of the yamas. We might say ahimsa, non-harming. If we start to weave in some yoga terminology and say, sometimes we just have to sit back and listen. So I'll always do the piece about listening rather than, than making sure you're the only one heard because you can learn a lot by listening to someone else. Oh, that is so true. As the instructor, we have to arrive early so we can manage the dynamic to make sure people aren't being left out. It's no different than any other situation. And the person that gets left out, usually you will, as an instructor or facilitator, be seen talking to them, making sure the group sees you talking to them. And then I'll say, oh, so-and-so, come on over and meet so-and-so. I will introduce someone I feel that might be a good connection for them, just at least for a hello in the room. I know it doesn't sound like yoga, but that's the work. The work is about creating a safe space for everyone and making them feel included. You know, I'm really glad that you use the phrase yoga philosophy there, because I know out there, there's a big barrier with some people that have only been exposed to yoga through what they've been told about yoga by other people. And what people are told sometimes is that yoga is only a religion. And what I know that some people don't understand that there are elements of yoga and the way that yogis approach the world that are universal truths. They're espoused by great thinkers and religious leaders all throughout the world of all cultures, loving others, calming your mind, taking care of yourself. Those things are universal. And the yoga teachers that I've learned from, 
speak to those things in classes specifically because they know they're talking to people of different faiths or no faith from different approaches to life, and these things apply to everybody. So I guess the question here is, when you hear a universal truth that's really foundational, does it really matter where it came from if it's a great idea? It's true. It's exactly right. And I think that that's part of what keeps some people away from yoga because they're afraid that yoga is a religion. It is a philosophy and it integrates with any religion. And you're talking about the positive. It's the kindness. It's the serving. It's the, the humanity that we're sharing in common. You can be Catholic and practice yoga. You can be any of the Christian religions, you can be non-denominational. You can be an atheist and practice yoga. Oh, I use that word practice again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll let it go this time. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think if the teacher understands the philosophy well enough, philosophy is a lifelong process too. These are lessons. We have sutras and that's kind of sewing it up together and giving ways to be in the world as a better human being. That's all it is. So that definitely translates into any religion. Hey, Tribe friends, it is Bruce, and I'm popping into the show for just a minute to ask you a personal favor. When it comes to podcast, subscriber numbers, ratings, and positive comments the show receives really helps people to discover the show and its content. Our mission is to try to get out important information to help empower people and to help people enhance the quality of their lives. If you like what we're doing here at the Our Cancer Journey podcast, or you feel it may be beneficial for others, if you'd be kind enough to subscribe, give us a favorable rating and a couple of nice comments too, we'd be greatly appreciative and we could be helping other people discover our program. Thanks a lot for listening. Let's get back to the show. Before we leave the topic of group dynamic, I want to talk about one specific thing, and I'll try to be sensitive about it, but, you know, the Arkansas Journey podcast space here is supposed to be a safe space where we can be candid and have some really direct conversations. So there are people that come into these group situations, and they are really struggling. These people are angry, they're confused, and I really don't want to use the word toxic, but that's a way that I think a lot of people understand what I'm talking about if I use that word. You know, we're talking about people sometimes taking up all the oxygen in the room. I mean, these people are sometimes putting out a lot of bad gas. <laughs> it's affecting other people. I know it's affected me. So what can we do as students and how do we involve you, the teacher, so we can work together to move through a situation like this? Well, I like that you clarified, what do we do? You mean as the student and how would you reach out because you're uncomfortable with this negative energy into the room? I've experienced that a few times. It's, it's not common, but when it does happen, it's challenging. First of all, as the yoga therapist, you want to reassure the student who's come to you because it's brave to talk about that. And that tells you right away that this student is ready to heal. And they know that they need to be protected. And they know that this energy is something that's not healthy for them. Many times a teacher will go, well, then you'll have to find another class, you know, they'll just because they don't know what to do with it. But if the teacher is intuitive, or actually you don't even need to be intuitive, when you see it coming down, you know, I now need to manage this. So we go to our next supervisor and say, I am about to talk to this student. Many times you'll find out the supervisor will already be aware. We'll put them in a different situation. Do you want to do a private with that person instead? But we do it in the guise of, you need a little bit more support right now. Then we can work you back into the classroom. So just to be clear for the audience, I'm not talking about people in this situation that are a little hypersensitive, a little emotional. I'm talking about people that are pessimistic. They're oozing negativity. They're really bringing down the class. And, and when you go into a class like this with good intentions and you want to really focus on healing and you're vulnerable, the last thing you want is to have a cloud of that negativity on you. So, you know, I want to say thank you, Kathleen, and to your other fellow teachers, because this is pretty rare. And I think a really big reason why it's rare is because you folks really establish right up front the dynamics of the class, kind of the rules of engagement in there. 
And you put out a real positive vibe, kind of setting the tone. So it's really wonderful that you guys do that. Yes. And just reflecting back to managing the negativity, it all starts at the beginning when the facilitator first meets the participants. That's when you set up kind of the rules of the game, in a sense, so that you make sure everyone is protected. So there's a share that will happen. And the way I set it up, I limit the amount of time because I've I've done it where I haven't, where the person says, well, when I was 20, it started then. And then all of a sudden they tell you about every single doctor, every single bad experience they had up until now. And everyone else is just living that experience with them. And that's also not safe because people tell stories in a way that can allow other people to join them in the pain. So if you limit the amount of pain and say, hey, what would you like to share about yourself? What is it you would like us to know? And it can either be about your cancer or it can be about your love of your music. It can be anything you want to share in this group dynamic. Then I'm listening to what do they choose to share? That's how I start to see, okay, this is what we're working with in the room. So I know later what other work I need to do. Well, that makes sense because the primary objective of being in the room is obviously healing and recovery. But human connection is important, too. So there is space and time for conversations at some point, correct? They can always talk later. They can go out for coffee with each other and tell the long story. But the class is not about, I didn't like this doctor. I didn't like that treatment. We need to be able to all come to a place where we can share but not relive your complete story. Yeah, I suppose if they're retelling their story over and over again, it's almost like they're reliving the past. It's kind of a rearview mirror, right? Because we're looking to change the narrative. When I say, hi, my name is, it's not, hi, I have breast cancer. It's now, hi, I'm Kathleen, and I am NED right now. So it's where I am in my journey, not from the very beginning. I was diagnosed in 2000, and that's okay, because there are groups for that too. There are support groups for that. So yoga therapy, I'm not a psychotherapist. So I want to make sure that I'm keeping everyone safe in my room. Wow, I really love what you just said there about the fact that they're not there to look backwards. They're there to change their narrative. That's really powerful. Thanks. And speaking about the rearview mirror, I want to talk about a particular kind of person because we oftentimes think that the kind of people that are going to show up to these classes are sick people, they're decimated, they need this kind of help. And that creates images in some of our minds. But there's a different kind of person that has to show up to these classes too. And sometimes they were the person that was the uber achiever. They worked out all the time, they kept themselves in good physical shape, and their self-identity was really linked to that. So now they're decimated by cancer. Their entire life has been reset. They're showing up to this class with you, and their whole life has been stripped away from them. Their identity has been taken away from them. Those people, when they show up in a yoga recovery class like this and kind of have to surrender to the fact they're having to rebuild, are sometimes they a challenge in these classes? Oh, yeah, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I have one in particular. I have one completely emblazoned in my head. It's not you. Hey, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> okay, okay. I was just going to say, if she says a name that starts with a letter B, I'm turning off the microphone. <laughs> well, to a smaller extent, this is a little bit true about me as well, but, but go ahead, go ahead. Your push is pales in comparison to what this person really was in my face about it. But because I'm also a personal trainer, I got it. And I could see it. So it was a bargaining that I did with this person. Fortunately, in this integrative setting that I work in, there was also a rehabilitation fitness training program as well. So I spoke with them and we came up with a plan so that he could go back into that if and only if he also practiced yoga at the same time. So while we were doing that, when he would come to session and say, I was really worn out. And then we would talk about Okay, when you were working out in the old days, just like me, you were probably working at 120%. And it would be like, well, yeah, yeah, that's what I was doing. And now you're kind of at 100%. Mm, Yeah, I said, I'm asking 80. Is it because if you're pushing against what you want to do, the body's going to resist it right now. 
It's not going to let you get there. So I need you to sit back and re-examine what your workout is. Look at it a different way. Let's look at it as a student of your own body. All the things you used to do, let's talk about it. Let's take it back a step and see, how does it feel now? Because before we, you and me, I would say you and me, we just pushed through it and did as much as we could. If 10 was good, we did 40. Now I'm going to say, do 10. Did it work? Did you like it? So it's reframing the situation and saying, you have a chance to reinvent your strength. Well, that is so true because our bodies really are incredibly different after the procedures and whatever we do, or we take a holistic approach. Our bodies are very, very different. So forget the uber athlete. If you take just anybody, they're now at home, they're recovering from whatever they did. And now they've decided I'm going to try to start to move because my body is telling me I need to move. I know it'll feel better. So they get up, they start to move. And when they do this, the only person that's there with them to keep an eye on them to make sure they're safe is them. They're already compromised. They're going through all the emotional stuff. And it's like when you come to one of these classes with a certified yoga instructor, you almost have like a wing person, you know, wing man or wing woman, whatever you want to say, that there's a person there that's with you that can watch you, that can help bounce things off you to not only keep you safe, but you can check in with them as well because you're in all new territory. You bring up excellent point because you just said, just get down on the ground. Well, you know what? Many cancer patients can't just get down on the ground, depending on surgery, depending on dizziness. So all of a sudden they're in their home and they're doing something they think is minimal and they find a block to what they're about to do because they go, oh, wow, I'm so dizzy. So they get discouraged. I've been there. So if you have a yoga therapist sitting next to you and they know what your background is, it's slightly different than exercise. And I speak to that because I do that as well. So in the piece of yoga, it's about reflection while you're doing the work. So you might do a movement and as I'm watching, I'll see an eye flicker and I'll walk up and say, are you okay? How did you know? Because a lot of people come into class stoic. I'm not going to let them know I hurt because I really need to get strong. And if I show them I hurt, then they're not going to let me move on to the next level. And so there's this self-competition that's going on. So we have to be really sensitive to say cancer or no cancer. Everybody's structure is different. Let's just dial it back a bit. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I have had a few personal trainers over the years. Okay. No comments from the peanut gallery. Got it. <laughs> I know you look at me and you go, really? I can't believe that. But, but I have. And when I did that, they were very focused on form. It was all about move this way, move this way. And very few, I, I'm not even sure of any one of them, asked me a question, how does it feel in your shoulder right now? What does the tension feel like? That wasn't their focus. My, their focus was execution, not reflection. But in your classes, that's the leading focus. And what's even more interesting is these people's bodies are healing and sometimes they're healing at a pretty good clip. So their bodies are changing and morphing right in front of you, the instructor. So it could be even harder for us to really monitor ourselves and to know what's going on because our capacity is changing, if not weekly, sometimes daily. So having that person, that monitoring could really be good to keep you safe. Yes. And that's the style that I'm teaching. It's a, it's a one-on-one style, although I'm teaching obviously in groups as well, but it's called Vini yoga. Not, it's not Yo Vini. My husband calls it Yo Vini yoga, <laughs> like, like it's on the East coast, but it's V-I-N-I. And it is a style from Krishnamacharya. It is a specific therapeutic style of yoga where it's function over form. So you just mentioned the whole form thing. It truly is function first. And I think that that's what gives us the space to explore our bodies. If we go straight into the form, then it's about completing something. Function is about living. It's about bringing it back to ourselves so that we can get back in the world and feel good about ourselves. I want to springboard off what you just said, because when you said feeling good about ourselves is a goal of the therapy that we're talking about here. You're called a therapist. In an earlier episode, you explained to us what a yoga therapist was. And listeners, as I said earlier, that's in episode number two of our podcast. 
Now, you were pretty detailed about that, but there are many other different people that are also called therapists, and they're in other disciplines too, some in health and well-being, some in mental health. Can you articulate for us what the difference is and the differentiation is between a yoga therapist and those therapists, and what we can expect from our relationship with our yoga therapist? we got to make sure that people understand we're not psychotherapists. A yoga therapist is someone who brings yoga in a very specialized way to support the person, not just because of cancer, but if they've had surgery, we need to understand the body structure to understand how to support the scar tissue and or the port or any other thing that they might be experiencing. We call ourselves yoga therapists, but having a psychotherapist is not a bad idea because you might find that with some of the medications, you might be getting side effects that might be causing some of the depression. So you want to make sure that you have all the support system in place, whether you believe in psychotherapy or not. It's a really good check-in just to make sure you're getting the right medications, the right people around you, the right support, because we want to make sure we're safe during this time. When I first started my cancer treatments, I was told by the main doctor that I started with, we have a fully integrative medicine practice here, so you're going to be meeting quite a number of practitioners, and my my God, I I think I must have met eight people, and you weren't even one of them at that point. I wasn't? (laughs) (laughs) I am outraged. (laughs) I need to call that doctor. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh. The doctors shall remain nameless. <laughs> Boy, I'm going to get sued by the AMA for this one. Anyway, okay. So, and one of the people I was introduced to was a psychiatrist. And I thought, well, well wait, because I didn't understand that. And I thought, well, do I really need a psychiatrist? I never envisioned myself as the kind of person that would lay on a couch and talk to a guy scratching his beard or some strong, stoic woman jotting notes about my mother. <laughs> I never thought of myself that way. But when they brought it to me and I said, why is this here? They basically said to me, we're here to give you options. This is like a menu. And we're here to give you expertise and suggestions about what other people have gone through and what could be helpful for you. You can do what you want. But we're going to be looking at every single avenue where you could possibly get off track because we want you to stay on track as a whole person. And I really appreciated that because not only was it a good thing to check in with my mental health, it is for everybody, I suppose, but also chatting with a counselor or a psychiatrist, they're going to ask questions about how you're doing. And they could say, well, so what's going on? What problems do you have? And a person could say to them, look, I'm really down. I'm just sitting on my couch and I don't physically feel good. And that mental health person could say, well, you know, If you want to, we've got this physical therapy program, we've got this yoga therapy program, and you could take advantage of that as part of our integrative medicine thing. So they're redirecting people back to some of these really basic things that could help you, as well as apparently you referencing people back to the mental health people in case they need it too. So it kind of shows how integrative medicine works. And that's why it's important that someone has enough training because as a yoga therapist, you need to know your scope of practice. So as you're working with someone, it's one thing to help someone through a tough time. It's another thing to recognize that they may need support. So you have to be willing and ready. You have to have your list as well of how to refer someone to someone else. And in this case, especially in a cancer treatment, it's more common than not to at least have at least one session or two sessions with a therapist. That's why the training is important because some of the teachers don't understand that boundary. There are boundaries when it comes to mental health. The program I went through, we have a mental health specialist that comes in and says, you know, goes through all the litany and says, this is someone you're not treating. This is someone you're referring out. You do your yoga and we'll do our therapy. So I think that that's that's part of when you were talking earlier about how do you choose someone, what type of background. It needs to be someone who is aware of their scope of practice. Okay, so we've talked a lot about barriers up to this point, barriers that keep people from trying yoga. What insights do you have about motivations that will help us to keep coming back to yoga? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I just, as you were saying that, because, you know, we've had many conversations over the years, but one of the pieces I think would help someone coming into the room, and this is just from teaching for a while, is if you're coming in not just for yourself, but to be of support to others, you are coming into a group situation and there's nothing more healing than listening and serving others. So if you come in with the idea of it's not just about me, it's about us. And what does this teacher have to offer? I am a student. I am going to absorb whatever knowledge this person has to offer me. And if I find one piece of kernel of knowledge that I can take with me, cool. But if I can also be of service, because there's nothing at this point, it's like everything's been taken from me. What what if I just sit there and listen and someone else is able to tell their story? So I think if you come in, not just I got to get fixed or what's going to be offered, it's Otherwise, you're doing a one-on-one, maybe if you're going one-on-one with somebody. But when you come into a group, you now are part of a community. And what can you offer, which always makes us feel better? Wow, that's really interesting that you just said that because I've been to some of your classes and I know that I went, you know, for me, like everybody shows up looking to help themselves. But after listening to other people, I did feel a connection with the other people. And sometimes I actually looked forward to going and seeing these people, too. You know, I was talking to a psychologist the other day in preparation for another article I'm writing, and they were talking about that being of service and stepping out and thinking beyond yourself is one of the best ways to motivate yourself to feel better about yourself because it gives your life meaning. This is somewhere where I least expected to be looking for that kind of meaning and giving back. That's really fascinating. That's a great, (laughs) never really thought about that. Well, it helps to build resilience. It's finding that core for yourself, that little piece of I am, not I am not. So it's reminding yourself of what you have to offer. Yeah. And when you say I am instead of I am not, sometimes the I am is I just want to relax. I just want to be myself. You know, in the crowds that I was in, a couple of your classes as well, after I attended a few times and I got to know a few of the other people, we started feeling more comfortable. And sometimes we start cracking jokes or we would make fun of our situation. And we were the only people sometimes that we could do that with. Every one of our caregivers and our family members around us were freaking out. And in that group, there was a safety for us to be able to be ourselves and just let our hair down. I think that's part of what we're talking about is everything's so serious. You know, from the moment the diagnosis, making choices, figuring out what to do, how to balance out our work, our family, all of that. If a teacher can encourage you to laugh, if they can take you down a place where you can smile again, a visualization, a reminder of like your favorite color, your favorite place, something that can bring you back to, I don't know, when were you happiest, Bruce? What age were you when you were the happiest as a child? What was your favorite age? Well, that would be a time many years ago when I walked into a yoga studio and met this very special teacher. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. I will be serious. I'll be serious because this is important. When I was very young, a very small boy, the world was filled with wonder. I didn't have a perfect life. My parents weren't perfect. My economic situation wasn't perfect. But I would look out and I would see a sunset or I'd see a vista, or I'd see people playing. And it meant so much. And when I pulled through my thing, I began to find that joy again, that innocence again. I know exactly what you're talking about. This is where it's important to have a lot of training and a lot of experience. We all just kind of assume whatever age we felt happy at, they felt happy at. Because you could say, when you were five years old, it might've been when their parents got divorced. When you are working with someone who is in a traumatic situation, you don't want to add another trigger. Well, I suppose you got to be careful because almost anything you could relate to could be a trigger, right? So, Eunice, I learned this because I took someone on a visualization of the ocean and they didn't know how to swim. And so they were terrified in the visualization. (laughs) And that was a long time ago. I learned from that that there's a way to guide someone to their own joy, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, here's your joy. Here's your joy. 
watch the water. Bingo the water. <laughs> Don't look at the sharks. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, so man. So by us sharing this, you realize that that's why training and experience is important. <laughs> oh, my dear listeners. Now you know that the Our Cancer Journey podcast pledge to be vulnerable and authentic and transparent <laughs> is absolutely real. Thank you very much, Kathleen. You give us great information. And you are just a pleasure to talk to. I hope we can do it again. I would love to. And I cannot wait. I am so in, Bruce. I can't even tell you. I, I would love to be a part of this. Yes. <laughs> I am thrilled to hear that, Kathleen. Thank you very much. And listeners, if you want to learn more about Kathleen, I'm putting a link to her webpage in the show notes. And please always remember this. You're going to hear a lot of things and a lot of people telling you what you should do and should think and what you need to do and how you need to do it. But if you're impacted by cancer, you're someone's caregiver, or you're a loved one that cares about them and wants the best for them, this is Our Cancer Journey. This episode of the Our Cancer Journey podcast is sponsored and produced by Fairlead Media. All rights reserved.